Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for joining us again for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Now, as I've mentioned in the past, we, we customarily will get people thanking us for our podcast, but we get questions. And Dr. Roberts and I appreciate those questions because we figure if one person has a question, the likelihood of other people having the same question is high. And so the question we had received was about something called two kingdom theology. Now, some of you may be aware of it. You may be aware of the controversy surrounding it, but my guess is that most people, whether or not they know the stated position, practically live in opposition to or in accordance with this doctrine. So Charles, let's get started by identifying this idea of two kingdoms. And I'm going to say people should ask themselves, which kingdom do they belong? I'll ask you to explain the current position, and then we'll get into more details. Well, part of the issue that two-kingdom theology is related to goes back to the words of in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where, for example, in Matthew 4.24, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness. So that's one of several verses that I'll be referring to. So there's this idea of the gospel of the kingdom, and kingdoms are unavoidable. We might say government is unavoidable. And two-kingdom theology arose in a branch of Reformed theology and Reformed thinking. It stems from a number of theologians who taught at a popular seminary out in California, by the way. And the idea is that The kingdom of man, the kingdom of this world, is a secular one, and the business of Christ's church is not necessarily to exhort the people in that world to do anything other than accept Christ and become saved. Now, that's a a gross oversimplification of it. I admit that. So if anybody's listening to this and say, oh, well, wait a minute, I understand that. But this is not meant to be a two-hour discussion of two-kingdom theology. In some ways, it parallels an earlier version of Lutheran theology as the distinction between law and gospel. Luther made a big to-do about that topic, and his followers maybe more so than he did. But this this idea that you have these parallel realms, and the main mission of the church and of Christians is to proclaim salvation by faith alone, by grace alone. So, Uh, I don't think I'm mischaracterizing that some people who advocate the two-kingdom view is that the the other kingdom, the the secular kingdom, again, is sort of a a neutral one, not in the sense that it's it's good or not good or not bad or whatever, but that that's not anything to do with theology and biblical teaching. So uh, I've heard of people who've said, who embrace this view, there's no such thing as Christian politics. There's no such thing as Christian education. Those are all, quote, secular things. Our our job, our mission is to teach people to accept Christ as Lord and Savior so that they will enjoy heaven after they die. Again, that's probably a simplification, but that's pretty close to being it. And people who 
adhere to this position uh, are understandably and probably not too surprisingly opposed to the idea that Christians have a cultural mandate, a responsibility to apply the law word of God in all areas of life. This is not just simply a, a message of personal salvation, a topic that we've talked about many times of pietism, my personal interior spiritual life. But as we understand things, as Dr. Rastuni pointed us to, this is a whole orbed gospel. It is a whole, whole orbed message that embraces every aspect of life, not just the interior spiritual life, and certainly not just something that happens that's going to happen when we die. Okay, so I'm glad you pointed out the history of it and how it's not too dissimilar from things we've seen in the past and we we see in the present. But it's important to differentiate what the mission of the church is, what the Great Commission is about. If the Great Commission is about doing raiding parties into the kingdom of the world. And what we're supposed to do is go out and get people to become part of the kingdom of God. And that's the extent of it. Then I think a lot of people would say, well, that is how you share the gospel. You, you let people know that they're sinners and that they have no hope in paying the price for their sin. So what you do is you get them to realize their need for a savior and they receive Christ. And for a lot of people, that's where it ends, right? They're supposed to not lie. They're not supposed to cheat. They're not supposed to steal. They're not supposed to kill. They shouldn't commit adultery. They should, um, you know, respect their parents, but that it remains a very personal or local thing. And then you have the gospel of the kingdom. Well, suddenly it goes beyond individual people. And now you're looking at families, churches, communities, nations, and we know that the scripture speaks an awful lot about the nations. And so the tendency to make it all personal sort of leads to this idea that um, we don't have a responsibility elsewhere. Am I characterizing that correctly, Charles? Yes. And I think part of the problem is the way that we read and hear the words in scripture that speak to these issues has been adversely impacted and affected by the trends in theological and biblical practice in the popular mind and in popular evangelism and, and things such as that. And the way this came about is the, the, the listener who contacted us, he last onto something that I said in a previous podcast where I said something like, you know, after my continued studies in scripture, I don't even like to use the term the gospel message or I forgot it, the gospel of Christ. I'm not saying there's anything bad with that, but, but, but my concern was is that people need to hear what scripture actually says. And Jesus, when he went about preaching, he didn't go out and preach personal salvation. <laughs> it may be hard for some people to understand, but if we go by what scripture teaches us, that as we understand personal salvation today, that's just not there. I just quoted Matthew four twenty three, and if you'll allow me, I'd like to share a few other passages. Sure, sure. In Mark Mark one fifteen, Jesus says, "The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." The message in the Greek it's the euangelion, and we'll talk a little bit more about that soon, because this idea of the proclamation of a message of good news predates the writing of the gospels. 
It was actually a common thing in Roman culture and society. In Luke 4.43, Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I've been sent. Luke 8.1, now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of get saved and go to heaven. No, that's not (laughs) what it says. It says preaching the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And then finally in Luke 9.60, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach, guess what? The kingdom of God. So if we're going to go what with what Jesus himself taught, and I would think that would be okay for Christians, sure. and if we're going to go with what the Bible itself actually teaches, then we need to be about the same business of preaching the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. So like you said previously, we need to understand what a gospel is, but then more specifically, what exactly is the kingdom of God? Right. And so in order to sort of set the table here so people will understand, because a lot of people say, is this new? This is nothing that I haven't heard before. But the reason it matters is because the word gospel didn't start out as being a religious term. It was a political term. Caesar Augustus proclaimed the gospel of the good news that Rome had conquered, that Rome, you know, that this is what would happen when there would be another defeat of an enemy. And as our friend Dennis Peacock points out in uh, a rousing sermon that he's done called The War, he points out that when it all is said and done, that nobody, the political leaders of Rome, was going to be too upset hearing Christians say, Jesus is my personal savior. As, as Dennis Peacock put it, you're not going to see any bulging veins because <laughs> somebody says Jesus is my personal savior. But what the early church did say is that Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And that was a challenge to the political order. And as he put it, that's what got them thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. And so today when people wonder why is the church impotent in so many areas is because it's not challenging the world system the way Jesus commanded us to do so. Yeah, and I'd like to say a word about that that background that we've referred to and the fact that this is not a new concept, the idea of the gospel or a gospel. In, in a very important work that was actually published in German in 1952, it's been, it was translated into English and Dr. Rastuni referred to it frequently in his writings. Uh, it's called Christ and the Caesars by Ethelbert Stauffer. And in this book, he, he was a New Testament scholar, Stauffer was. And in this book, he draws some of the interesting parallels and the backgrounds to what was happening in Roman society around the time of the birth of Jesus. And in this book, he talks about the Advent celebration. Well, it was the advent of the great god Caesar Augustus. Because he was heralded as a, as a god, and the reasons that you alluded to, the, the winning of battles, in his case, primarily the Battle of Actium, where he defeated Mark Antony. And it's interesting when you read about how the, the Roman Senate bestowed these laurels on him and proclaimed him Zeus incarnate. It's some of the same language that was used to talk about the birth of Jesus. And uh, 
the, the Virg, Virgil, the Roman poet, proclaimed him and prophesied the great coming of a messianic. They didn't use that term, but it's essentially the same thing. This great deliverer who would bring peace across the empire. And when it was determined that, in fact, this is who uh, Augustus Caesar was, then the idea was to proclaim this. And so in this book, uh, the uh, a date was set according to the book in a time when there would be a huge celebration. And Stoffer notes, heralds traversed Italy with their star-studded shields and blessed wand of Hermes and announced the invitation to the ceremonies. The Roman College of Priests, with Augustus himself as their head, distributed holy incense to the masses for purification from past guilt. And it goes on to talk about this. The heralds there refers to the same people we call apostles. That is another term that was in common use. Whenever Caesar or a Roman political figure, a Roman government figure would travel to some part of the empire where they say, like, like say Pontius Pilate was head of the province of Palestine, the, the herald, the apostle would go forward and say, the governor is coming, get ready. Uh, the, the, the herald of the news, the euangelion in Greek, the, of the gospel and the message, the great one has arrived. Augustus has come. And so this idea then that there's this dawning of this age of the kingdom of the great, great king, the great leader goes very, very far back in history. But even before that, people understood that they lived within the realm of some kind of law authority. Might, might be a primitive tribe where you had the warlord who was head of everything, or it might be something a little bit more sophisticated than that. But it, this sort of thing is inescapable. You will inevitably be in one kingdom or another. I think that for the modern ear, kingdom is something that we, we, we think is antiquated. That was for a time before. Now we have democracies. And so very few people recognize that if you have a theocracy being the rule by God, anything that opposes that, even if it has this kind of familiar term democracy, creates a warlike situation. And so whereas nobody would say that Rome during the time of Christ was a democracy, they would say was there was a political order of which the Christians were challenging that order. And to make matters worse, they weren't even a mighty army with swords and spears and chariots and political alliances. They were preaching a very, very different gospel than Caesar's gospel. Yes, and the the people who originally gave us our form of government in these United States, a constitutional republic, they absolutely didn't want a king. But I think I'm not speaking out of school and saying that at least some of them, some of the key figures, they understood that even though they gave us a constitutional republic, they were not pretending to give us something other than that which be, would be connected to the kingdom of God. I believe it was James Madison who said that the form of government that the founding fathers gave us was created only for a people who lived by the Ten Commandments. Well, the Ten Commandments come from a divine authority, a king, if you will. So implicit in, in all of this is the idea that there is a higher realm of authority to which a person is accountable. And 
you alluded to this just a moment ago in Dr. Rastuni in his book, Salvation and Godly Rule. Um, and speaking of this issue of the kingdom, he says, uh, the very unity of the human race in Adam leads men to seek a unified order, but the godly seek the kingdom of God and the godless the kingdom of man. The clash between the two is inescapable. The doctrine of creation gives men a common origin and a common framework of purpose in the regenerate. This means dominion over the earth under God in the unregenerate. This means dominion over all things in defiance of God. Conquest is thus a common goal, but with very differing programs to radically different kinds of kingdom. So we could say maybe in one sense that there are two kingdoms. Uh, but it's not in the way that the more recent theological fad has tried to tell us. There is the kingdom of God, which is an all-embracing kingdom. It embraces everything to the exclusion of the kingdom of Satan. But the other kingdom is indeed Satan's kingdom, humanistic man's kingdom, and it claims to have equal authority or, or, or excuse me, more sovereign authority than over God's kingdom. Yes, and of course, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the king, capital K, of kings, lowercase k, and lord, capital L, over other lords. And I think that a lot of people hear that. They'll sing it at Christmas time, but I don't think they comprehend the challenge, the fact that this is the culmination, you might say, of the war between the two seeds that was laid out in Genesis 3.15 and that Jesus coming and Jesus's faithful walk, his death, resurrection and ascension proclaim that the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of the Christ. And so if we've lost sight that that means that just like it was told in the Old Testament, every place your foot trods belongs to you as a representation, as a representative or ambassador of the king, then it becomes much more serious than how you feel in your heart and how you feel between your ears. And I'm glad you made that reference to um, the passage in, I believe it's Revelation chapter 11, where it talks about the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Because another passage I wanted to share is from Dr. Rushduni's commentary on Revelation. And in uh, concerning Revelation 17, he wrote these words. He said, before the fall, man was created by God to live in paradise, in community, and to realize in that estate the kingdom of God, the perfect government. Eden was the locale of the kingdom of God on earth. Well, of course, um, that was the end of the quote. But, uh, of course, that all changed with the entrance of sin into the world. And Dr. Rushduni went on to comment on that. He said, man and his institutions are thus sin-ridden, and no single order of life today can claim to be the locale of the kingdom of God on earth. Rather, the cultural task of man is entrusted to the various spheres of life reserved to them. The kingdom of God is now to be achieved through Christ Jesus, and its realization is reserved to him. The kingdom is approximated by man as man serves Christ faithfully, in the various spheres of life, in church, state, school, calling, family, and all things else. And that gets to the heart of what we started out talking about, and that's the two-kingdom idea, because the people who advocate that would say, well, no, 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 wait wait a minute, wait a minute, no. Uh, we have no mandate 
to apply the basic principles of God's law word in the area of the school or the the uh, the, the government and local politics and all the rest of it. That that's something left to somebody else. We can preach the message of salvation by faith alone, uh, through grace alone, to those people, but we can't tell them anything other than that. What's interesting to me is we've just gone through an election cycle. And I know a lot of good people, and by good people, I mean people who will profess Christ, worship the Lord, desire to keep the commandments, and wish that their neighbors and friends would do likewise. But what they don't understand is that the problems in our society just didn't start five years ago, 10 years ago, even 50 years ago. The problems began when people started to adapt to the thinking that said, maybe it doesn't really matter what we do here in terms of influencing culture, because after all, we're not going to be here. Heaven is our home. This is not our home. And like anybody who's ever cleaned a house, if you don't think you're going to be there very long, pretty soon we're going to be out of here. You don't spend a lot of time redecorating or painting and stuff because it's not going to be where you're going to be. So by taking the attention off this earth, we've really abandoned the substance of what Jesus's parting words were that said, go out and disciple the nations and make them disciples. He didn't say make them converts. He said, make them disciples. And this gets to the heart of another side to this issue that's not really technically related to the two kingdom uh, theology that's popular in our time. It goes much back, it goes much further back to an earlier aberration and distortion of the teaching that's found in dispensationalism. Because the dispensationalists, they too uh, talk about a kingdom and the kingdom of God, but to them, it will be a literal earthly kingdom with Jesus sitting on a throne in the modern city of Jerusalem, probably sometime within our lifetime. It's usually the way they, they phrase it. So in other words, it's always future. It's always yet to come. It is not present now in any way, shape, or form. And we do not believe scripture teaches that at all, that it is a present reality, but it is continuing to unfold and expand. And that is part of the mission that Christ gave his, his people, his his church and the great commission as recorded in uh, Matthew and the other passages. You know, I think that one way that's helpful to think about this is that people read the text of scripture. And if they've got a background in this futuristic uh, thinking about all this, you know, they immediately want to invest images in scripture and think of it in more 20th or 21st century terms which would have absolutely no meaning or relevance whatsoever to the people to whom those words were originally spoken. So when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, the word kingdom had a meaning. Those people understood very well what a kingdom was. Now, we do too. We we don't have a king in these United States, like say in England or Sweden or, or something like that. And we have not ever had one. And we can read about kings and how they functioned over time. But the fact is we do have something that would take the place of a king. And so we need to think of it more in line of, okay, what would the people who heard Jesus say? I must be about preaching the kingdom, the message of the kingdom of the gospel, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, excuse me. How would they have understood that? That's the place we start. And then is how is this relevant today? I, I want to try to drive this point home in a little different way. In um, Matthew chapter 21, 
Jesus gives this interesting guidance to his apostles where he says, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, loose them and bring them to me. So I say that because you know, I read that passage because some people today would do something like this. He said to them, go into the village and you will find parked there a new brand new Toyota and a Honda. Drive them <laughs> over to me. Now, of course, <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous because there were no such things back in those days. But essentially, that's what the people who distort these teachings would have us like to like to have us think about that he's saying something that is absolutely irrelevant to them. Uh, this idea of some way off in the future kingdom with him sitting on a throne in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem has nothing to do with anything like that. That would be totally irrelevant to those people. So what we have here then uh, is a highly relevant message that has to do with the business that they, the immediate followers of Jesus and the people who come to follow him through their teaching and the ministry of the Holy Spirit were to continue that forth. And let me just make one more point, and then I'll be quiet a moment. Um, you know, the, the people who oppose the message of the kingdom, and I mean those who are humanistic and essentially promoters of Satan, they understand this to a large extent much better than Christians understand their mission. You know, there's a, there's a lot of interest today in the resurgence of Marxist idea, woke wokeism, a cultural Marxism, these sort of things. You can find all kinds of people doing DVDs and videos, and, and that's all well and good. But people need to realize, if nothing else, when they take these kind of studies, is that Marx and his followers, or Freud or any of the other atheistic, anti-Christian, anti-biblical philosophers and teachers, they had a mission, they had a plan, and the people who latched onto that vision and that plan had a desire to move it forward and to keep it going. We are living today in the aftermath and the fruition of that mission. You know, the, the fact that, that we have, you know, transgenderism, drag queen story hour, the, the blurring of sexual identity, the promotion of ideas in our schools that are just absolutely antithetical to anything our founders and our parents and grandparents believed or taught. That didn't just happen overnight. It was a part of a well-organized plan of people who would catch that vision and keeping keep it moving forward. There was a proclamation of a kingdom, in other words. And unfortunately, because of the influence of the pietistic and uh, interior, I just need to get myself saved and go to heaven influence in Christianity, and there have been other negative influences, but in these United States, that's the primary one, that vision has been lost or distorted. So when you don't understand history from a biblical perspective, it's easy to try to find comfort in why are we having these problems. And that's why when people don't understand what the first century was like and subsequent centuries for Christians, they don't understand that the battles ended up being political because the message of the gospel of the kingdom was a challenge to those who would say that man can determine for himself right and wrong. Why would the religious leaders, who were very much political leaders as well, and the Roman authorities care anything about this new fledgling group of people called Christians or of the way if they weren't a threat? And today, I think too many Christians are looking at, let's not be a threat, and by not being a threat, we'll win more people. Well, that's why people scratch their heads and say, 
wait a minute, we know a lot more people that think like we do, and yet that other side wins. Well, maybe because they've abandoned the idea that this world belongs to Jesus Christ, and we are not faithful if we just concede that point. They've either abandoned it or they never fully understood it or believed it to begin with. And I think that in a rather unusual way, perhaps, we can be thankful, and I'll put that in quotes, for the whole COVID business, because if if nothing else, it has certainly shown us which churches, which people who call themselves Christians are, in fact, worshipers of the government and of the state, and fold like a lawn chair at the first declaration of authority over the church, over the teachings of Christ, rather than raise that voice of opposition, as you referred to earlier in in Roman society, you know, if our forefathers and foremothers in ancient Rome had been like modern Christians, well, you know, we would all be Romans today, you know, Uh, or or we would be more like some of the uh, apostate churches that we see. You know, uh, the, the government officials and the people who've set their sights on trying to destroy and eradicate true biblical Christianity, they're not concerned with those so-called churches that um, promote homosexuality, that have, you know, that that recognize same-sex marriages and perform them, that have drag queens teaching from their pulpits and all the rest of it. That's just a modern form. there, There are other aspects of these things that go back many decades that were indications that these churches had long since abandoned any uh, reference to the absolute authority of Scripture, and they basically were promoting a humanistic message. And unfortunately, those people and those churches, even some that pretend to be conservative, I mean, there are some even within the camp where you and I would, I think, generally place ourselves, the Reformed Calvinistic camp, uh, who were some of the first to get on board with, yes, let's shut our church down. No, don't you dare sing in church, and, and all this this kind of thing. I think in the end, these churches are going to be deeply, deeply disappointed, if not destroyed, because they've gotten onto the bandwagon of humanism, and that is a total dead end. And I think we should clarify that humanism could also be referred to as statism, and statism referred to as humanism, because ultimately, as you pointed out, there's going to be an authority structure. And I've been recently reading through both books of Kings in the Old Testament, and their mentions of kings that would come to power and they did not remove the high places. They continued doing things that were sacrificing their children, making them pass through the fire of Baal. And then there's a statement that says, and doing things that even the heathen, even the pagans that God had obliterated, they would have been shocked to what these societies were doing. And one of the things that we've attempted to do with our podcasts is to bring to light, like I did in a recent podcast on what happens with organ donation and transplantation, what happens with in vitro fertilization, what happens with abortion being a source of body parts and things to use for biological research. And so when we look at what's going on here, the real question is, why shouldn't God destroy us, right? If the whole history from the time of Adam to the present has been about one thing, it's been about We must obey God 
and respond to his definitions of right and wrong. And once we realize we're incapable of doing it because of our original and continuing sins, there was and is a need for a savior, one who could save us from this inclination and this effort always to be disobedient because that's part of our fallen nature. And so once we understand this, rather than giving up or saying the only way out of this is God is got to rescue us out of it, is this sense of embracing what the early church understood. It wasn't necessarily going to happen in their lifetimes, but they were called to be faithful, right? Remember, what we all want to hear is well done, good and faithful servant, which means you stood up against those things in your jurisdiction or environment that were contrary to God's law. And I think that kind of boldness will produce the results people hope for. But they, if they're saying it has to happen before I die, they've missed the purpose of the kingdom. There are many blessings and advantages that a person can take advantage of, of the Chalcedon Foundation, is that you uh, will receive periodic letters from the Chalcedon Foundation president, Mark Rustuni. And I received one from Mark just the other day. It's a November 2022 newsletter. Some of these, I think, eventually find their way onto the website. I'm not sure. But he made this statement, and it's very, very uh, crucial and cogent to what we're talking about right now. He said, the essential issue is that Christians are still unclear about what obedience to to God looks like. And this goes to the heart. I'm, I'm stepping away from the quote now. People say, okay, well, what is the, what is the kingdom of God supposed to look like? I mean, what are we supposed to do? What, do we proclaim a king? And No. L- listen to what else he wrote. They've shunned biblical law and therefore God's covenant, and they do not expect victory for the kingdom to come outside of an apocalyptic end of times. He said, therefore, the failure of humanism that we are witnessing now is setting the stage for the disillusionment of large numbers of people and hopefully the moving of the Holy Spirit and a revival of Christian faith. So we are at a crucial time where this proclamation of the kingdom of God, people are going to be open to hearing what that is if Christians would get their ducks in a row, so to speak, and realize that we have been given marching orders to proclaim that kingdom. And it is, as Rustuni, uh, Dr. Rustuni mentioned in one of the books I quoted, the paradigm model is that of the Garden of Eden. God placed Adam and Eve in that place to rule as his vice regents to spread his kingdom in his new creation. When that failed, he sends Christ to be the new and successful and true Adam. And the mission continues under in and through Christ Jesus. So this is not about, as, as our enemies like to say, oh, you're going to take over, and or you're, you're, you think things will just get better and better. Now, this is the hard work that Christians used to do, and we need to get back to doing, in ordering our personal lives and governing ourselves according to the teachings of God's law word, and then extending that governance into all the other areas of life that we're involved in. Where in the world do we get any idea from Christ that that his word only applies to one little narrow spot in my personal interior life? Well, I'll answer my own question. Nowhere. Right. So I mentioned I was going through the book of Kings. There's two books, actually, and I think I'm in the second one right now. And there's a couple of things that struck me as being significant. Most of the kings were disobedient, 
and the Bible enumerates how they were disobedient. And there were some that were obedient, and they stand out just because they were minority. But so often, good king or bad king, the Bible includes the name of their mother. Hmm, And I'm like, hmm, why would God (laughs) include the name of the king's mother? Well, maybe I'm stretching here, but it has to do with the important role of a mother in teaching her children how to be obedient to the word of God. And so I believe the scripture is highlighting how important that is. So just in case people think, oh, you have to be a politician, you have to go to law school and be a lawyer so that you can then be a judge. No, it has to do with what mothers do. And if a mother is disobedient, if a mother has carried on with, well, I'm not ready for a child, I think I'll have an abortion or I don't really want to give up the perks in my life, so we're not going to require that our children go and get a Christian education, that's going to have ramifications. Now, it's not that the fathers are off the hook, because the second commandment says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto subsequent generations of those that hate God. But it goes back to the family instilling in its members that it's not just about you personally or us as a family, or even our nice little tight-knit community. We should look at churches as the filling stations to fill up the tank, to go out and take dominion in the culture. And one of the things that I think has stopped Christians, and I believe this is something that the enemy has planted, this whole idea of you shouldn't vote for the lesser of two evils. Because when you vote for the lesser of two evils, it's still evil. So a lot of people feel very comfortable sitting out elections. But those people who sit out elections aren't busy creating and discipling and educating people to be a candidate so that you don't have the lesser of two evils. You could say this is someone who stands for righteousness as opposed to someone who does not. And I believe in this election cycle, we've seen people who fall into that category of they're going to be bold in proclaiming what they think is true and not worry about accusations against them as blasphemers. Because you have to understand, if you say the child in the womb is a human being, you've just blasphemed the humanistic mindset. If you say that a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl, you have just committed blasphemy and you will be censured for it. So people think that blasphemy and things like that go away. No, they don't. They're just transferred to the imitators, the counterfeits, And I think we need to get back to this idea that if we don't have good choices, then it's our responsibility to create good choices. Yes, every kingdom has its rules and regulations, and every kingdom has its version of what is blasphemous. And you just mentioned the example of the one that is so prevalent in our humanistic uh, decadent age. So blasphemy, like so much else, is unavoidable. The question is, what God are you going to be accused of blaspheming? I'm glad that you brought up the issue of the, 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 the books of Kings. When I first began studying for ministry and going to seminary and preparing sermons, 
Second um, Kings 22 and its equivalent in Second Chronicles about Josiah uh, was uh, one of the key figures that I was very interested in because you know he he was one of the good kings, and what characterized his goodness was the fact that he rediscovered the law of God and had it proclaimed and tore down the high places. In other words, it, it turned the people away from, from paganism. But when you said that, I went back and looked and sure enough, you know, it mentions his mother, Jedida. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that this goes to the heart of, again, kingdom work. It begins in the family. This is the paradigm given in the Garden of Eden. When God created man and woman, they were to have a family. They were to be his people. He didn't create uh, a, a, a Republican or Democrat party. Uh, he, he created a family, first and foremost. And out of that, all the other institutions of human society were to develop. But the foundation is what takes place in the family. As Dr. Rushdoony never ceased to, ceased to remind us, that is the first church and the first government a person has in their lives. And what we have seen in American society over the past 150 years or so is a gradual moving away from the foundation of the family as the central place to it being transferred to the school, largely, the, uh, the, especially the, the government schools. And if, if people would take the time to research this, they would find that there were individuals and groups of people who had a vested, vested interest, a financial interest in getting women out of the home and in the workplace because it was a, a greater tax revenue source for the government. And also for people who had this agenda of recognizing, wait a minute, this is God's plan. We can wreck that plan, so they thought, if we can get the women especially out of the home, get the men on board to, okay, yeah, go work, and we need more money to do this and that and the other. I was having a conversation with someone recently, happened to be a woman, who uh, worked at a place that I I go to uh, often, and we happened to be talking about earning college degrees and she mentioned that she had never been able to pursue that until recently because she said you know i I did this and then i then i had my family i had my kids so now i'm you know i I can start thinking about it again and i understood what she was talking about but it, it struck me not necessarily her personally but the general attitude is you know my highest calling as a woman is to get a college degree and go to work and you know get a degree in marketing and work in an ad agency rather than have children raise the family. So in other words, she did that, although I think her children are still at home, but she had done that. But her bigger calling, the great thing she really wanted to do, had nothing to do with her kids or very little to do with it. And that's one of the things that I promote with the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute, that it's the highest calling for a woman to hold her position, which is a really important position in the family. And when you talked about Josiah, I invite people to go back in the book of Kings about how Josiah, once he understood God's law, what he did, he would have been getting the liberals of his day (laughs) to freak out because it says he destroyed this, he destroyed this, he got rid of these people. He even went outside his jurisdiction and knocked down some of the high places that were under Israel, and he was a king of Judah. So his mother must have emboldened him in some way that once he understood that what she's saying matched up with what God's word said, that he could be bold, and he wasn't really concerned what his opponents might think. 
And, and going back to the idea of the importance of a woman, a wife and a mother and her role in the family, I think it's significant to go back to Eden. And even though Eve ate first, we hear that this is the sin of Adam. Now, some feminists might be upset. Why don't we call it the sin of Eve? She ate first. Let's give her credit for what she did. But her problem was that she moved outside of authority. And Adam's problem was he didn't assume authority where he had it. So if we take a look at authority, we're always under authority, but God is not going to be happy with us if we don't exercise the authority he's given us. Yes, and the reference that you made there about um, you know Eve being the one who ate the fruit, and, but we call it the the sin or the fall of Adam. You know, I didn't realize this until someone pointed it out in a in a Bible study I was attending in somebody's home when I was in seminary of all places. Uh, it wasn't related to my seminary studies at all, but I had never noticed this. But when Eve ate of the fruit, it says that she get she ate it and then she gave some to her husband who was with her. So it wasn't like she was off by herself and un, unseen by Adam. You know, his his calling and his job was to uh, cultivate the garden, which meant protecting everything in it, including his wife. But apparently he stood by and watched as this whole thing went down. And this is why he bears the responsibility. I mean, they're both sharing in it. Uh, right. But as you, you just pointed out, that, that there, there was the connection of the man's role in this as well. So this would tell us to the modern faithful Christian woman that we need to know our place in God's kingdom. Not our place because some chauvinistic man says, you do this, and we get into all these caricatures of, you know, oppressed women, is that when you move outside your role, one way or another, failing to exercise it or going beyond your jurisdiction, there's going to be problems. When we've convinced people, as you mentioned this woman, that the only way they can really achieve success is by getting the world to you know approve of them with the degree or position the bible tells us the name of the mother it doesn't have to but it tells us the name of the mother and i think that's one of those things you have to ask yourself why is this included and i hope to encourage women and if they haven't read anybody who's listening my book empowered which surprisingly a lot of people think is some sort of feminist decree against the order of scripture it's quite the contrary we're empowered when we obey god we are lost when we don't and ineffectual so if anyone is still puzzled or unsure about the issue of the kingdom of god well, there's no doubt whatsoever, based on the scriptural evidence that I shared, that this was what Jesus taught and preached, the message of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Well, if anyone is still unsure about what that looks like, then I would just invite them to reflect for a moment on modern humanistic man and his family and his society. And you can see how the uh, antitype or the opposite of God's kingdom works and that you have everything in a person's life is circumscribed by teachings and ideas that are the opposite of the teachings of God's law. So from the time a child is born into a family, that child is exposed, say, to television. What are they seeing on television? 
cartoons and silly things that reinforce the ideas that are popular in uh, woke political theory and political correctness and, and humanism. Uh, what do they get in their school? Because that's most families, like we've said, the parents are working. They just turn the children over to the state to educate them. Uh, if I, I don't imagine that any of our listeners are uninformed about some of the things that are going on in the government schools nowadays. And you've got to be cautious, even in some so-called Christian schools that promote similar ideas. So the idea then is that what you see going on today all of that needs to be either done away with or replaced with the message of the kingdom, the message of God's law word, because God, God's word speaks to everything about every aspect of life. We've just been talking about the role of a, of a woman and mother in the family to some extent, the, the man, the husband, the fact that it is a, a man and a wife, a, a man and a woman who constitute the foundation of the family. That in itself is a revolutionary idea in our time. Who would have ever thought? But there we go. That's an example of how the kingdom of God differs from the humanistic kingdom. And again, this is not an easy concept, perhaps, for some people to grasp from the standpoint of, okay, well, how do we go about implementing this? What do we do? And again, I want to be clear. I've said this to others. I think maybe we've said it here before. I'm not at least saying that, oh, we just need to get back to 1952 and the Eisenhower era. No. I'm not saying that because that too was an era of decline and stepping away from the foundations of biblical law. Uh, we, we need to have a fresh vision of what God's kingdom looks like grounded in his law word and following after the words that have been revealed to us in Holy Scripture because it is the perfect rule of faith and all of life. So I want to bring up two points that have sort of played in and around our discussion before we close. If you go back to the creation account, when Adam experienced and God had him experience this aloneness that he didn't have a compatible partner, he looked at all the animals, none of them were going to be a compatible partner. And since Adam was without sin, there wasn't any attempt at things like bestiality, which end up happening in pagan cultures because you don't, in other words, he wasn't inclined to look at less good stuff. He was feeling his need. And so God gave him his wife and he has this beautiful exchange when he sees her about that she's flesh of his flesh, bone of his bones, and that she's, we're, we're told she's the mother of all. Now, fast forward to the transgender movement, to the people dressing up as women who, quite frankly, when they do, are grotesque looking and anything other than feminine or female, and realize that the enemy's assault is very similar to first going after Eve and then, as a result, his attempt to bring down mankind. So feminists... In the past, and there's plenty of documentation on this, they had some legitimate gripes with regards to the way society was going, but they chose to solve those problems, not biblically, but by imitating or trying to get the better of their oppressors. So if people haven't realized it yet, this transgender movement, the push for abortion and infanticide is an attack on women as much as anyone else because 
once you damage them, either mentally, psychologically, or even physically, you move them out of the realm of being able to be mother of all. And there's nothing that is so unique to the female feminine experience than being a mother. And what does the enemy want to do? Prevent these people from becoming mothers. That is, in fact, what they want to do. And they have mounted these various attacks uh, in an attempt to be successful at that. And ultimately, what they want to do is eradicate the human race as it has been known and replace it with something hideous and grotesque from the biblical standpoint. But we know that they will not succeed in this. And even in their pretended success, they will spell their own suicide and doom. And so Christians need to be aware that in spite of what may look like success or an inevitable coming apocalypse or dystopian future, we need to be about the business of the message of the kingdom, of kingdom building within our lives, the lives of our families, and harboring the ideas that have been abandoned by so many so that when the inevitable collapse occurs, and, and I, we're, I'm, by saying that, I'm not talking about some universal worldwide event like the dispensationists like to believe in. These things come gradually, and they come in different quarters and sections at different times. The key thing is we need to be ready where the Lord has placed us in terms of our family, our calling, to hold up that standard when those who are um, disillusioned and if not uh, deeply affected in a bad way by what comes down the pike from this, they will be open by God's grace to the message of the kingdom. Yes. And I'm glad you um, brought up that last point because even the word apocalypse has lost its true meaning. The apocalypse was a revealing. This was the apocalypse, the revelation that was given to John of things that were going to happen shortly and then carry on until the culmination of Jesus' second coming. Today, the whole term and the whole genre of, you know, zombie apocalypse and the apocalyptic themes and such posit this idea that the world will be destroyed. It will get terrible. And I, there are segments in the church that say, I don't want to have to go through that. So this appeal to, well, we're really not going to have to experience that. We're going to be rescued from it. I can understand why that might be appealing, but I don't think they understand that that portrayal is not the portrayal of the revelation of the showing forth of what's going to happen because you can't look at the book of Revelation without seeing victory. And I think a good place for me to, in my part of the discussion, is to refer, refer back to something you have already mentioned from the book of Revelation, where uh, the Lord proclaims that the world, the kingdoms of this world have become, not will become, but have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he reigns forever and ever. So the books that Charles mentioned, the two books that he referenced that Dr. Rush Juni did write, like Kingdom Come and Salvation and Godly Rule, and I guess I should add God's Plan for Victory, which is a very short book, but one that's very helpful, is to have ourselves identify with the victorious side as opposed to the oppressed losing side. And I, I think that once people say, wait, I've been looking at this incorrectly, we're going to see 
in individual lives and in family lives, a resurgent of that hopeful expectation that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty and victory. Yes, we all want to be on the winning side, but it's more important in this case to be not only on the winning side or by being on the side of the path of life, of justice and truth, which is given to us in God's law word, we will be on the winning side. Indeed. Listeners, thanks for giving us some of your time. If you have anything you'd like to comment on this or past or even suggestions for future podcasts, you can reach us at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. I can assure you we read all your emails and we hope you'll join us next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.